Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5? We have been studying the book of Ephesians here at Calvary, taking it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The first three chapters, Paul focuses on doctrine. The last three chapters, he now focuses on duty. As we have said many times, Christian learning is important, but if it doesn't lead to Christian living, it's really empty. And Paul wasn't the kind of guy who just wanted to fill our heads with a lot of good biblical information. He then challenged us to put it into application. And that's a very important point because too many Christians, well, what they believe doesn't match up to how they live. There's a great disparity today between what Christians say they believe and then how they live in their everyday lives. And so we want to bridge, we want to close that gap so that your word and your deed become one, so that what you learn about the Lord you desire to apply into your life. So we are in a very practical section here in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And uh, Paul is focusing on the believer's walk. And in fact, in chapter 5, the section that we are in from verses 15 through 21, he is admonishing us to walk in wisdom, to walk in wisdom. And uh, in verse 15, he said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul is admonishing us to walk in wisdom, but he doesn't leave it there. He goes on then to give us the three primary ingredients involved in walking in wisdom. He said, if you, if you are walking in wisdom, first of all, you'll be redeeming the time, verse 16, which means using every opportunity God brings you for, your way for His glory. Secondly, you will be understanding the will of God for your life, verse 17. Not just His general will, which He has outlined in His Word, that's important, but His specific will, in other words, his individual will for your life as you seek to walk with him day by day. And so that's important as well, that we not just wing it, but we are really being led by the Holy Spirit, that we're conscious of the fact that God wants to lead our lives uh, individually and has a plan for us personally. And uh, that plan unfolds as we seek him day by day and walk with him. And thirdly, walking in wisdom involves being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's very important because we can do nothing apart from God's Spirit. I mean, everything that we are in Christ and do for Christ is dependent upon the power of the Spirit working in our lives. And so we've taken a few weeks to camp on verse 18. And uh, last week we said, look, how can a person, how can a Christian tell if he or she is filled with the Holy Spirit? Very important. I mean, we must be filled with the Spirit if we're going to really accomplish what God has purpose for our lives. How can we as Christians know if we are filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, in verses 19 through 21, Paul lists three of the main evidences that indicates a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, he said, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, they will first of all be joyful, verse 19. 
They'll be thankful, verse 20, and they will be humble, verse 21. Now, we looked at the first two last time we met. And we ended that study by saying that we would save the last evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit until today because Paul uses it to segue into a section from verses 22 to 33 that we are calling God's design for a Spirit-filled marriage. Look, to walk in wisdom in general means to obey all that God has said. And that's wise, right? It's when we don't obey what God has said, or we only obey partially what He has said, that's where we get into some big trouble. So it's wise to obey everything that God has said, even as Jesus Himself said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, not most of the words, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, when we talk about marriage, that simply means that we are to obey or to follow God's design for marriage all the way. I don't have to tell you guys, all you got to do is look around at how our society is dissolving into abject immorality and even anarchy, all due to man's rebellion against God's authority over our lives. The word anarchy, interestingly, is a word that means without a ruler, literally without a ruler, without a king. You know, as a nation, we have entered into a period in our nation's history uh, very much like what Israel entered into during the time of the judges. Remember that? You read the book of Judges? Pretty black period in their history, wasn't it? And there's one statement that's repeated, I think, five or seven times in that book. Because there was no king in Israel... Therefore, everybody did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This was a nation at one time that was a nation founded under God. One nation under God. We were a nation that we realized God had established. A nation that was founded upon the principles in His Word. But you know what? God is no longer our King in America. In fact, the government has become our King and our God. People are looking to the government to provide everything that only God can provide. And because there is no king in, Israel, in America, uh, God is really not on the throne of our hearts. Therefore, everybody is doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. And look at the moral chaos that's ensuing. You see, God has designed three institutions that are essential for the function of human society. They are, first of all, human government, Secondly, the church, and thirdly, marriage. And all three are vital to the health of any human society, and all three function under the principle of authority and submission. Authority and submission. Submission would be impossible without humility. That's why in verse 21, even though Paul talks about submitting to one another in the fear of God, I've chosen to label that last evidence of the Spirit humility. Because submission would be impossible without humility, and humility would be impossible without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Folks, I don't know if you realize this, but everything God wants to do for you and wants to work through you is going to come as a result of your humility. You're humbling yourself in the sight of God. Very important point. Humility is the opposite of rebellion. Everything God wants to do for us and through us is dependent on humility, our submission to God's authority. Uh, we see this in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 5, he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Folks, that's the language of humility. But humility isn't a quality that's valued very much in our culture today. In fact, our society, as a society, I should say, we look down on humility. We consider humility a sign of weakness. Our motto as a nation today seems to be, blessed are the proud, the arrogant, the pushy, for they shall be exalted. In other words, promoted above the rest. They shall be great and successful. But see, that's not how God sees it. The question is, what is true humility? What is true humility? If humility is essential for submission, and submission is absolutely essential for everything God wants to do in our lives, what is true humility? Well, a lot of Christians think that being humble means that you go around putting yourself down all the time. You know? You're constantly walking around saying to yourself and anybody else who will listen to you, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm a worm. Just constantly putting yourself down. And really, when I see a person who's always putting themselves down, you know what, to me, that's just pride masquerading as humility. Jesus said, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus was the epitome of humility, but he certainly wasn't a worthless worm. And he certainly didn't go around putting himself down to everybody that he came in contact with. Look, humility is not self-loathing. It's not beating yourself up all the time. Humility isn't the same as low self-esteem, by the way. Genuine humility doesn't focus on self at all. It doesn't put self down. It doesn't lift self up. True humility simply ignores self altogether while it focuses on others. Now, there is both a vertical and a horizontal dimension with regard to humility. When we talk about vertical humility, of course, we're talking about our relationship with God. Our relationship with God. Vertically, humility toward God is simply the quality that understands I am helpless without God. Didn't Jesus say that? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Which then causes me to lean and depend on him for everything. That's true humility toward God. To say, Lord, without you, I am absolutely helpless. I am helpless to get into heaven I am helpless to do anything to please you. I am totally dependent on you for everything. That's vertical humility toward God. Of course, the horizontal dimension of humility deals with our relationships to each other. Horizontally, genuine humility says, and here it is, now listen, you're more important to me than I am. That's horizontal humility. You are more important to me than I am. Paul expressed this idea in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, when he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's true biblical humility. Now, if humility is truly present in a Christian's life, well, it first and foremost will manifest itself in a submissive attitude towards the authority of God, but also towards those who he has delegated authority to, whether that be the government or leaders in the church or a husband in marriage. Look, I think most of you already know this, but rebellion against God's authority 
is the reason for all the problems that we face as human beings. And I don't believe I've overstated that one bit. Let me say it again. All of the problems that we face as human beings can be traced back in some way, shape, or form to rebellion against God's authority. Of course, rebellion against God's authority started in heaven long before it was exported to the earth. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Let me show you. Sometimes we think that rebellion against God's authority started in the Garden of Eden. No, no, no. It started in heaven long before that. In Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12, we read these words. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Rebellion always has at its core, I. The exalting of self. The putting of self above everything else, including the will of God. You see, that is at the core of all rebellion. Where people do not want God controlling their lives, but instead they want to be the God of their life. We saw it with Lucifer. Before God ever made the world, in heaven, Lucifer rebelled against God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 tells us that he then led a rebellion in heaven and a third of the angels followed Lucifer and his rebellion and they all became fallen angels determined to do everything in their power to bring their rebellion to the earth and to destroy mankind, people that God made in his image and after his likeness for the purpose of glorifying his name. See, that's what rebellion always wants to do. Rebellion does not want to give God glory. Rebellion wants to be glorified. Satan said, I want to be like the Most High. I want to receive the glory from the stars of heaven, the angels. And whenever a person rebels against God, it's always because they don't want to acknowledge God's authority over their life. They don't want to bring God glory with their lives. They want to do their own thing and bring glory to their own lives and so on. Because that's what rebellion is all about. Rebellion wants to receive glory. That's what Lucifer said in heaven. I want to be like the Most High. I want to be exalted like God. I want to be God. I don't want to worship any God. I want to be God. That's at the heart of all rebellion. And so they brought this rebellion to the earth. And in Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there. Of course, you all know the story. Satan came down to the earth into the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve lived. And he took the form of a serpent. We don't know what the serpent looked like before the fall. Uh, it was a creature that is very much unlike what we know today as a serpent. As we're going to see in a moment, uh, God cursed the serpent for what he had done and uh, forced him to crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. Before uh, the fall, serpents in the garden were obviously uh, quite different than what we know as serpents today. In fact, uh, they talked. We don't know if all the animals talked. We just know that when Satan took the form of a serpent and came to Eve and started talking with her, she didn't freak out. She didn't say, oh, a talking snake. You know, she sat down and talked with him. I mean, they must have had uh, conversations all the time. I mean, it wasn't a, uh, something that she, she thought was unusual, like we would today if a snake came up to us and started talking to us. 
But Satan took the form of a serpent and came to Eve and basically said to her, look, I know God has told you that you can eat of all the trees in this garden except for the one in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you understand why he wants you not to eat of that tree? Well, why? Because he knows that fruit is so good and it's so powerful. If you eat the fruit of that tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to achieve enlightenment and you're going to be like God. See, God is trying to keep from you something that is really good. And Eve started to think, so God really doesn't have my best interest at heart. Oh, if I eat the fruit, I'm going to be like God. That sounds appealing. And so she ate the fruit. Her eyes were open. She knew good from evil. And Adam, who was somewhere, we don't know what he was doing, but he came back at one point and she gave him some of the fruit and he ate. And they both fell. Like the serpent before the fall, man was very different before the fall than he is today. We read in the Psalms how that originally God clothed man and woman, uh, mankind, with light. They were light creatures. Lucifer, that name means light bearer in the Hebrew. When man fell through his disobedience to God, which was really rejecting God's authority over his life to do what he wanted to do, exercising his own authority, he fell. And we see then God coming into the garden. And starting in verse 15, God begins to pronounce the curse. First on the serpent, he says, from now on, you're going to crawl on your belly and eat the dust of the earth. Then he moves to the woman. In verse 16, he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, that one statement that God makes here in verse 16 to Eve is significant where he says, your desire shall be for your husband. At a quick reading, it sounds almost endearing, doesn't it? And a lot of people have interpreted that to be some kind of an endearing thing. Oh, isn't that sweet? Her heart's going to be for her, her desire's going to be for her husband. Oh, you know, she's going to miss him when he's gone and she's going to, you know, really want to always be with him. And you know what? That's not what God's talking about here. Let's not forget, God is not speaking in endearing terms. He's pronouncing the curse. The word desire in the Hebrew literally means to seek control. The same exact Hebrew word appears just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 7. We're after Cain, you know, Abel and Cain, Adam and Eve's two sons. Abel brought an offering to the Lord based on what God had said, and God received it. Cain decided, I don't want to do what God said. I want to do my own thing, and I'm going to bring God an offering to the works of my hands. And God rejected it, and Cain was pretty upset about it. And God said to him in chapter 4, verse 7, Look, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you stop being so rebellious, if you stop doing your own thing, if you bring to me an offering based on what I have said, not what you want to do, I'll accept it, I'll receive you. But listen. If you do not do well, if you don't listen to what I have said, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. Same Hebrew word, but you should rule over it. And God is telling Cain and all of us as human beings, really, that sin wants to dominate and control our lives. But we are not to let it. We are to rule over our passions. We're not to let our bodily appetites run wild and just do what, give the flesh whatever it wants. 
We are to maintain control in the Spirit's power over our lives. Sin should never control us. It does and did in many of our lives before we got saved. But God says, look, uh, it's going to destroy you if you let it control you. So you are the rule of it. And this same idea became a reality in marriage through the fall. God was saying to Eve, Eve, here's the problem now because of what you have done. You've rebelled against me. And this rebellion is not, was not limited to that one act. Now it's going to filter down into your marriage and every other marriage after yours. In the sense that you now as a woman are going to seek to control your husband. Your desire is going to be for him. Same idea as in Genesis 4 verse 11. You are going to try to control your husband, to dominate him. Adam, you're not to allow that. I've made you the head of your marriage. You are to be the leader of your family. But this is now part of the fall, part of the curse. God is saying, look, you are to rule over her, Adam. It means you are to have authority over her, verse 16 tells us. Look, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul makes it very clear. If Paul didn't tell us this, we may have missed it from just reading Genesis. But Paul tells us that the reason God made Adam first out of the dust of the ground and then at one point took something out of Adam's side to make woman, Paul says God did that for a reason. I mean, God could have made them both out of the dust of the ground at the same time, right? And breathed life into both of them. Why did he wait? Well, he didn't, he, he forgot. He didn't forget. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe he forgot to make a helper for Adam. No, that's not what happened at all. God wanted to establish an authority structure that Adam was made first, and then from his side, God took something, a rib or some DNA or something, and made from man a woman to be his helpmeet. We'll talk about this more as weeks in the weeks to come. But the idea was God was establishing an authority structure. And in the beginning, when God first created Adam and Eve, and he married them in chapter 2 of Genesis... This authority structure was there, but it was invisible. What do you mean? Well, because both Adam and Eve had not fallen yet, they were perfect, uh, there was no rebellion in their hearts towards anything God said. God said, Adam, you're the leader, and Eve, you're his helpmate. Fine, Lord, whatever you want. They were happy to do what God had said. There was no battling, no, you know, why does he get to be the head? Why can't I be the head? You know, and arguing back and forth, and it was none of that. The authority structure was there, but it was invisible. But then the fall occurred, and the curse came upon the human race, and all of that changed. You see, no longer, God is telling us in Genesis 3, no longer would the man and his wife function beautifully together in marriage, each knowing their God-given role and happy to fulfill it. Now the woman would desire to usurp her husband's authority. But God is telling Adam he was not to allow that to happen. And he was to now take a more visible and dominant role as a leader in the marriage. And I'm not talking about abuse, folks, please. I mean, I'm not talking about Adam doing anything but just being a strong leader now. Uh, God wants us as men not to be abusive leaders to our wives. He wants us to be servant leaders, but he wants us to be strong leaders too. He wants us to understand that he has given us the authority to be the leaders of our family. Now, that's a serious thing. And we're going to talk about this more next week because the greater responsibility is not women submit to your husbands, it's husbands die sacrificially for your wives. That's the greatest responsibility in marriage. And the idea is that, you know, God's saying, Adam, I've made you the rule of your family. You've got to lead. 
And all of us men, God has commended us to be leaders, but we're going to answer to God for how we led in our marriages. Did we treat our wives like doormats? Did we lead by this totalitarian kind of authority where we beat them down with our words and some guys with their fists because those men are going to stand before God someday? That's not the kind of leadership God is looking for in marriage. When he talks about being a strong leader, he's just saying, look, know your role and fulfill it. And women, the same thing. No wonder we have so many problems in our culture. Everything has gotten messed up. People have thrown off God-given instructions and authority and so on, and they're just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. Let me just say this, guys. Today we see the effects of the curse being played out in marriages, in the battle of the sexes with things like feminism and chauvinism, those kind of things where men and women are constantly at odds with each other. It's a mess. Sin not only disrupted man's relationship with God, but it also, listen, corrupted his relationship with his fellow man, including and especially his relationship with his wife. But here's the beautiful thing God wants us to know. And this is what I believe God is trying to teach us in Ephesians 5 and in other places that, that, that talk about marriage. I believe that by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior and being in Christ, well, the effects of the fall can be overcome in our marriage. I don't care how bad your marriage is right now. If you both have not given your hearts to Christ, or even if one of you has given your heart to Christ, there is hope for that marriage. Because Jesus can take any marriage, no matter how bad, and he can recreate it. He can make it brand new, a new creation, where old things pass away and all things become new. He can return your marriage to a time prior to the fall, in a sense. Uh, he can make it exactly what he wanted it to be from the very beginning, before sin entered in and corrupted the whole deal. But only in Christ. Only in Christ. But this isn't going to happen until we accept God's authority over our lives. And I mean over every area of our lives, including our marriages. Look, when we willingly submit to God's authority over our lives and obey all that he has said to us, well, we become more and more like Jesus who said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus was the epitome of humility. And we are to follow his example. And the idea is the more we give up control of our lives, and folks, that's what sanctification is all about. Salvation happens in a moment of time. You give your heart to Christ, at that moment you're saved. You're not working towards salvation. You're not growing in salvation. You're either saved or you're not saved. But once you are saved, at that moment, then a lifetime process kicks into gear called sanctification. And in a nutshell, sanctification is really becoming more and more like Jesus by giving up more and more control of our lives to him that's how the spirit conforms us daily into the image of christ more and more so the more i obey what god has said and submit to his authority over my life the more i become like jesus but conversely when we rebel against god's authority over our lives we move more and more in the direction of the devil whose nature is that of rebellion right the devil was a rebe was a rebel from the beginning jesus said you know we don't want to think of it that way but whenever we rebel against anything God has said, we are moving in the direction of the devil who is a creature of rebellion. Jesus is the epitome of humility. The devil is the epitome of rebellion. K.P. Yohannan, in his book, Touching Godliness Through Submission, put it this way, and I quote, he said, Biblical submission to authority is recognizing that God, my creator, 
is the ultimate authority and has all power. As clay in the potter's hand, I, his creation, should yield full control of my life to his will. This includes submitting to and obeying all delegated human authority over me, realizing that when I do so, I am actually submitting to God's authority. Likewise, when I rebel against delegated authority, in essence, I rebel against God himself. Serious stuff. Something to think about. Now, let's look at our text again briefly, and then we'll just bring this to a close, because I just want to lay a foundation. In fact, I've entitled this message, uh, The Foundation of a Spirit-Filled Marriage. But here in Ephesians 5.21, again, Paul said, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. What did Solomon say in the book of Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. What are we talking about in this section? Walking in what? Right. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Then Solomon went on to say this. And the fear of the Lord is to hate what? Evil. We could put in the word rebellion there because all rebellion against God is evil, right? So the fear of the Lord is to hate rebellion, which means the fear of the Lord is to love what? Humble submission to the will of God, isn't it? See, if we're talking about hating rebellion, then conversely it means to love obedience, to to willingly submit to God. So we could really translate verse uh, verse 21 this way, submitting to one another in submission to God. Because it's God's will that we submit first to Him and then to those that He has given as leaders over our lives. Now let me talk about submission for a minute. The word submitting there in verse 21 is the Greek word hupatasso. Hupa means under and tasso means to line up or to arrange. Hupatasso therefore means to line up under. It was a word that was often used in a military sense and it meant to rank beneath or under another. Paul is telling us as Christians we are to rank ourselves under one another, not over one another. We are to rank ourselves under. That's what humility is all about, right? You're more important to me than I am. I'm not going to try to dominate you, and I'm not going to try to lift myself above you to control you. I'm going to push you above me because you are more important to me than I am. That's what really loving humility and submission is all about. We're not really fighting for the top. We're fighting for the bottom, really, is the idea. But the whole idea of the of the Christian life as we relate to one another is one of mutual humility and servanthood. I mean, didn't Jesus say the greatest among you will be the servants of all, not the lords of all? In fact, he said the Gentiles, unbelievers, they think greatness is how many people they lord it over. How many people are there in authority over? But God says, I look at greatness this way. How many people you're putting above yourself? How many people you're serving through your life? Not trying to control and dominate and, you know, That's what true humility is in the Christian life. But let me just say this. There's a considerable amount of controversy that's been kind of swirling around this whole idea of authority and submission in marriage for decades in our country. I mean, you know, this is going back to the 60s probably, where you have, you know, people who are not happy with the God-ordained roles that he has set forth for marriage, right? As a society... People have been bucking the whole idea of authority and submission primarily with regard to marriage. In fact, there are those that are pushing for a totally egalitarian society, 
Uh, no roles, no authority, just everybody totally equal, which means there is no authority in submission and marriage. Husbands and wives have the same input, the same authority, and so on, which goes against what God said. And at the heart of it, it's just a refusal to accept what God has said with regard to the roles of men and women in marriage. The sad thing about it is that the church has been capitulating to this political correctness in downplaying the issue of submission and authority in marriage as well. I have taught Ephesians 5 with regard to marriage numerous times over my 30 years of ministry. Every time I try to uh, teach on uh, marriage from uh, Ephesians 5, I will read new books and listen to new uh, teachings by different men that I uh, think are good teachers and good, solid men of God. But for some reason, they want to take Ephesians 5.21 when Paul said, submitting to one another in the fear of God, and they want to use it to soften and downplay what follows with regard to God's clear instructions as to the role of men and women in marriage. So when you, you hear them come to verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. They say right away, well, yeah, but see, now wait a minute now. In verse 21, we're told to submit to each other, trying to soften and even downplay what God has clearly said about the role of a woman in marriage to submit to her husband. Um, and they say verse 21 really calls us to mutual submission in marriage. They say that the way we should really interpret uh, that section from verses 22 through 25 is this way. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, and husbands, submit yourself to your wives. And almost every Bible teacher I've ever heard uh, exegete this passage, they almost always will bring that up. Now, I disagree with that interpretation. In fact, I think it constitutes a serious distortion of what God is saying here. Because if we apply that interpretation consistently throughout the whole passage, we have to interpret the rest of it that way also. In other words, when Paul says that Christ is the head of the church, we'd have to say of it also that the church is the head of Christ. In chapter 6, when Paul says, children, obey your parents, we'd have to say, yes, but parents obey your children. Uh, servants, obey your masters. Well, also, masters obey your servants. You see, if we went through the whole passage using the principle of mutual submission, it would lead us to a lot of bizarre interpretations and applications, and really the whole passage would mean nothing. It would be hopelessly confusing. It wouldn't make any sense. Historically, Paul's words when he said, submitting to one another in the fear of God, have always been understood that in any Christian's life, at one point we are all called to submit to somebody else. When we're kids, we're called to submit to our parents, our teachers. When we get older, to police officers. Uh, when we are full-grown, to our employers. And when we come to church, to our pastors. And if you're in the military, to commanding officers. In other words, none of us are sovereign beings unto ourselves. At one point in the Christian life, because God has designed government and church and family to function under the principle of authority and submission, all of us at one point are going to have to submit to somebody in authority. And he goes on to say in chapter 5, starting in verse 22, wives, here's who you are to submit to in marriage, your husband, your own husband. Okay, because Paul's going to say that, make sure your own husband. Some husbands think that women should submit to all husbands. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Submit to your own husband. We're going to see the word own there is the word we get our Greek word, we get our word idiot from. Submit to your own idiot husband. You don't have to submit to every idiot husband, but just submit to your own idiot husband. It just means, you know, at one point in our lives, we're going to have to submit to some type of authority and leadership. 
And, and that's just a very important point. By the way, let me just say this as we close. Because I just want to lay a foundation here. We can give to you, I believe with all my heart, that Jesus Christ can work a miracle in your marriage. I've seen it. I've seen marriages that seem to be beyond repair, hopelessly damaged. And then a person got saved, the wife or the husband, or they both got saved and began to come to church, began to study the word, were filled with the spirit, and, got, and began to do what God had said. And you know what? God began to work a miracle. But folks, all the best teaching and principles in the world on marriage from God's word are going to be worthless to you if you are going to maintain a rebellious attitude that says, I don't care what he says or this book says, I'm going to do what I want to do here. But you might as well just close the book and go home. Because without godly submission rooted in humility, there's no way God is going to be able to do anything in your life. God resists the proud but gives grace to the who? To the humble. But let me just say this, because, you know, some people think, and they chafe under the whole idea of authority and submission because they think we're saying authority means better than or superior to. That's not what we're talking about. Biblical authority does not mean that one is better or superior to the other. Biblical authority is simply a neutral vehicle that God has given to all the institutions he has created. Whether, again, you're talking about government or the church, you think I'm better than you because I'm your pastor? Believe me, I'm not better than you. We're all equal in the eyes of God. But when it comes to the function of government, the church, or marriage, God said somebody has got to be in charge. And if there's no one in charge, there's anarchy and chaos. It's a neutral vehicle so that your marriage can function. Otherwise, if somebody doesn't have the, the right to, to break the tie, you know, and make a decision then you get locked into this thing and nothing happens. That's why, as we've said before, you can't have a two-headed monster running your family. Somebody has got to have the authority to say, look, I know that's how you feel and I respect your input, uh, but really on this issue, I really believe as the leader of this family, we need to go in this direction. That doesn't mean he's always right, girls. This means that you're going to stand before God for how you submitted to him, and he's going to stand before God for the decisions that he has made that affect you and your family. It's an awesome responsibility. But again, quoting from uh, KP, Yuhannon, he says, Submission to authority is not a man-made thing. It is instituted by the omnipotent God. The foundation of all God's word, even God himself, functions on this principle. And then he quotes from Romans chapter 13, verse 2, where Paul says, so anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Now, of course, the context in Romans 13 was this. If you rebel against the, the laws of your government, you're going to be arrested and punished, prosecuted. So that was the context there. But as we broaden this to include any rebellion against delegated authority, I mean, what Paul is saying is, look, how can God prosper and bless your life in the way he wants to if there's rebellion there? If you're not willing to obey him in every area of your life. Oh, but you don't know my husband. He's a real jerk. I mean, I don't think I should have to submit to him. If he was a better husband, I would submit to him, but he's a jerk. He treats me badly. I mean, he doesn't beat me up, but he's, he's nasty. He doesn't appreciate me. 
comes home from work, sits on his, on his throne there in the front room and barks orders uh, to me, bring me this, bring me that. Uh, I don't think I should have to submit to that kind of a man. Submission is not based on worthiness. It's based on what God has said with regard to the office, we'll say. There are people that, like your boss, chances are you're a lot sharper than your boss. Okay, We all think we're sharper than our boss, except for me. I know who my boss is. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely not sharper than him. But we all, you know, everyone thinks that they're sharper than their boss. And maybe you are smarter than your boss. That doesn't matter, right? He's still your boss. And you've got to respect him or her. Yeah, it's not a matter of who's worthy of receiving. God says to you ladies, ladies, if you want me to work in your marriage, stop fighting me. Stop usurping the authority I've given to your husband. Let me work on him by you simply submitting to what I have said and loving and submitting to him and being alike to him. Peter says, look, if you want to win your unsaved husbands to the Lord, he said, you know, just be a godly witness and without a word, you'll win them to Christ. But the idea is that we have to understand that, you know, if we're going to rebel against anything God has said, then God is not going to be able to do all that he wants to do for us. And so whether you talk about marriage or your Christian life in general, we need to really understand how important this issue is to God. Authority and submission. We're going to talk about this. I know this can be abused and so on. And of course, we're not to obey anybody. Wives, if your husband tells you to do something God has told you not to do, or tells you not to do something God has told you to do, then you have to obey God rather than men. And we're not talking about that, though. We're just talking about everyday loving submission to him, letting God then work, you know. I remember uh, years ago reading, uh, actually, I heard a series. Uh, some of you have heard of Chuck Missler. He spoke at our church a few months ago. Uh, him and his wife, um, Nancy, Chuck and Nancy Missler, uh, they have an incredible testimony. They were both Christians for years, but had this incredibly bad marriage. I mean, just always at each other's throats. It was terrible. And Nancy was always, Chuck was a high-powered business executive always traveling and no doubt arrogant and things and she was fighting him and she was trying to force him to be what God wanted him to be by just hounding him and nagging on him you know that's not going to get anywhere girls I got news for you and so finally you know in desperation the marriage was just about ready to dissolve it was that bad they're both Christians she realized she was at a desperate place and she really began to humble herself before God and cry out to him and God spoke very clearly to her he said Nancy when you stop trying to play Holy Spirit in Chuck's life and you simply do what I have called you to do, love him and submit to him, then I will be able to work in Chuck's heart. So Nancy said, okay, Lord, that's what I'll do. Now, Chuck didn't know any of this was going on, right? Chuck comes home from work, opens up the fridge, and immediately he's confronted with all the things he likes in the fridge. Not all the things the kids like, but all of a sudden now it's like, wait a minute. It's all Mike's favorite foods. It's a little odd. Closes it, sits down to dinner, and notices immediately he didn't get the crack plate and the bent fork that night. <laughs> and already, God began to work. In fact, the whole series has been written down into a book, The Way of Agape. The Way of Agape. God's love. God's love is a very powerful thing. And if we get out of the way and let God's love work on a person's heart because we are not trying to control and dominate and nag and whatever else we try to do to get people saved or 
living with the way God wants them to live. If we will just show loving kindness and submission and so on, God is able to work miracles. So keep that in mind as we begin to move through this section. I believe God wants to do a great thing. I believe because he has ordained marriage to be a microcosm of his relationship with his church. I think that if our marriages are being lived the way God wants them to be lived, people should look at our marriages and get saved. Especially today, when so many marriages are dissolving and, and, and seems like at a record rate, marriages are failing. When people see a good, strong, loving, spirit-filled marriage, don't you think they're going to be drawn to that? Don't you think they're going to want to know what you're doing? What's your secret? Well, my secret's Jesus. It's not me. It's totally him. So may God give us grace as we move through this section that he would teach us, yes, the principles we need to learn, but that by God's grace we will then humble ourselves and let the Holy Spirit apply into our lives those principles that God might begin to really work a miracle in our marriages and in our walk with him. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. We thank you so much, Lord, for saving us for reaching down, Lord, and taking us out of the domain of the devil and darkness and rebellion and bringing us into your marvelous light, making us your children, filling us with your spirit, giving us your word that is a light to our feet and a lamp unto our path. Father, by your grace, give us strength to abandon self, to crucify self, to stop trying to control our lives, stop living in rebellion against you. And Lord, that you would give us the grace to move closer and closer to you by having the heart of Jesus who said, you know, it's not about my will. Father, it's about what you will. And so, Lord, give us the grace to be humble, submissive, respectful of authority, to pray for our leaders, but to be lights in the darkness, Lord, not rebels like the rest of the world, but submissive saints who will show the world that as children of God, we respect authority, and that authority primarily is God's authority over our lives. Give us the grace to do that, Lord, and to live that. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.